This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Hi, I'm Mary Payne Gilbert, and this is my podcast, Pain in the Pod. Today, I'm in the Big Apple, New York City. I'm beyond thrilled to be talking to Josh Block, the creator of a jaw-dropping podcast called Escaping Nexium, which is about his childhood friend, Sarah, who belonged to the cult Nexium. Josh is a writer, producer, and performer with the CBC, which is Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Hi, Josh. Hello. Hi. So, Josh, you met your friend, well, you met her when you were two. And your families were friends and you kept in touch through the years. But then you saw her 15 years after, you know, not seeing her for a long time, as you do sometimes when you get older, you don't see people. And you just said, hey, what's going on with you? I work for the CBC. And she said, I just left a cult. Yeah. And what did you think? You thought, oh, yeah. I mean, you said your mouth was just dropped open. Well, once I learned more, so I kind of vaguely knew that she had been part of this self-help organization. Um, and I didn't know what it was, you know, it it sounded strange, but I had no idea what I would eventually discover was going on in it. So it was really when she, she, I ran into her a couple times over the course of that, that little vacation on the small little island. And every time I ran into her, she would give me a little bit more of a morsel of what was going on. And, uh, eventually she said women were being branded in the organization with the, with the, with the initials of the group's leader, Keith Ranieri. And then she told me, and I'm one of those women. And that's really where my jaw dropped open. And I thought, wow, what is going on? How did this person I've known for so long end up in the situation where she is branded with, you know, gets the brand of this guy's initials on her pelvis? And at that time, was she talking to the New York Times yet or no? She had just gone to the New York Times. Uh, but she had no idea. Like she, it was two months since she had left. And remember that people had been leaving this organization before and had gone to the media before mm-hmm. and nothing ever happened. Like there would be an article and, and you know, something would be written about it and it'd be kind of a flare up, but nothing happened to the organization itself. And in fact, a lot of people suffered huge consequences for, for going public with the story. So when I ran into her, I mean, she was pretty freaked out. She had, she had gone to the New York Times. It wasn't clear if the article was going to be published, when it would be published, whether it would be on like page nine or, you know, it ended up being on the front page, which is quite significant. Um, But it was definitely, you know, she had come there with her husband who she left with and and her kid uh, really in a lot of ways to decompress and get away. I mean, since she had left, her phone was buzzing nonstop and people both inside and people wanting to leave and the media and other people were trying to get in touch with her and she really just needed to decompress. Like I said to you when you came in, I normally when I do a podcast, I have about one page of notes, sometimes one and a half. I have six pages. <laughs> right. So what I'm going to try to do, I'm going to scroll through because there's so much to unpack. I really want to talk about the podcast itself. Right. But in that, there's, I can't even imagine how you as just like, not just like a journalist, but a friend is hearing all this and you're thinking, this is, well, first of all, it sounds a lot like Scientology minus the the branding, but you start your podcast episode one and you talk about the branding, which is what most people um, have seen in the news because it's so it's, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. And how she describes it at one point, like some of the lines are still sort of red and angry and some are fading. And she said many times, like, I don't even have a tattoo. I have nothing on my body. And I've got this brand, you know, 
on my pelvis. And so you, so tell me why you decided to start the podcast like with that, like, like I'm going to start off with a bang because you could have, you could have made this podcast 20 episodes. I mean, there's so much right. left still to discuss. Yeah, so, yeah. And we really struggled with what, with how to structure it and, and how yeah. to tell the story. And part of the struggle was that when we started the investigation, very few people would have heard of Nexium. Nexium was still in full operation. Um, it was, you know, there was not a lot of stuff out there. By the time, a few months later, suddenly the New York Times comes out and then later the leaders are arrested and there's a huge amount of media that comes out and everyone's talking about Nexium. So we had to do a lot of reconfiguration about what our focus was. And one of the decisions was to really focus on Sarah's story. Yeah. On Sarah's story. Um, you know, at one point there was we thought, well, we need to do a whole segment about the accountability here. Why isn't anyone doing anything about this? And then, of course, by the, you know, by the time we went to air, the FBI had launched this investigation and people had been arrested, so that wasn't as relevant anymore. But what we had, and the value we really could add to the story, was the access I had to Sarah and, and her willingness to share her story with me. We really decided to focus on that. And you know, we wanted, I think, because there was so much sensational media around it, we really wanted to move past the headlines and past the sort of like alleged sex cult and branding and try to understand how is it that a, a seemingly ordinary person can get so drawn into a group like this over the course of 12 years that they end up getting this initials on their body. So we knew that people had heard about the branding and we thought, let's just start there. It's kind of on the table. People are going to be expecting it and let's tell it. And I have to say that we, we, we spent a lot of time building that first episode and kept having to pare it back because there's so your head is spinning yeah. in it. And, and it was, it, you know, at one point we had all kinds of stuff about the collateral she handed over and, you know, a lot more stuff about the group. And we thought we can't do it. People are just going to be reeling from this and, and it's going to be too difficult to digest. And so we really decided to, to do the bare bones and let her tell the story of that night of being branded that night, which is, you know, about half the episode is just her recounting what happened to her in that branding ceremony. And then I think, you know, people are leaning in at that point and we have more space to go back and say, okay, how did this happen? What's going on here? In the first episode, you also talk a lot about, um, not a lot, because you get into it later as well, but you talk about Keith Raniere, who claims to be one of the smartest men in the world. Now, the funniest thing was later on, they talk about the test that he took to prove that. And one of the women that had left was like, it was a take-home test. <laughs> so I was like, hey, maybe I too am the smartest person in the world. But he's, but as the smartest man in the world, so he used his smarts to create a, initially a multi-level marketing company. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere along the line, a little bit like L. Ron Hubbard decided, hey, money is actually in religion and to get people to follow me. And he decided to kind of shift his focus and do that. And because he's so brilliant, it worked. And you know, to go from that to being indicted on this sex trafficking and racketeering, you just, I'd like to talk about his lawyer, okay? Because I know that comes later. It's one of the later episodes. But the lawyer, you know, did think he was real smart. But he also said he had- He had had a a number of smart clients. He had another of clients that were the smartest men in the world. He mentioned Martin- Scarelli. Scarelli. And he was like, have you heard about him? He's also one of the smartest men in the world. Right. So Sarah started- the Vancouver Center of ESP, which is Executive Success Program. Right. So this is the multi-level marketing part where you yes. bring people in. You know, she said she would go in and be like, you think it's going to be like, 
like people cheering and rooms, <laughs> and it's like eight people in a conference room. That's right. But then if you get those eight people sucked in, then now those eight people can get six more people right. and whatever. It's personal growth courses. So this was her whole life. It was her career. Mm-hmm. It was her personal life. She married her husband. Mm-hmm. Her friend married her that was in the cult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she claims like Scientology does, it's a humanitarian effort. Right. So where, okay, back to what you said. You're trying to figure out why she got into mm-hmm. the cult in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think you came to the conclusion, she did as well, that maybe she's looking for validation as a person. Yeah, I mean, I think she she admits that she was a seeker. Um, she was at a point in her life, she was an actor, she was at a point in her life where she wasn't fe- feeling fulfilled by the work that she was doing. Um, she wanted something to feel like she was doing something more significant. Uh, she was in her late 20s. I mean, it was just, a, the time was ripe for her um, to find something that she could be a part of that would give her a sense of community and belonging. And she also talks about struggling growing up, feeling like she was accepted and, and that she belonged. And that in a lot of ways, Nexium fulfilled both those things for her. The promise it gave her was both that they could change the world, that they would be part of this humanitarian organization and she could help people. And she really feels, and I think she continues to feel like she is, she helped people. She helped people, you know, personally develop and, and um, reach their goals. Um, and it also gave her a strong sense of community, a sense of power, and she made a lot of money in it as well, which was quite helpful. Um, and I have to say that that, that despite the, the fact that it was in this sort of crappy hotel conference room or whatever, I've talked to you know a couple dozen people that have taken those that course, that entry level course, and there's a few uh, you know there's a whole bunch of courses that you can take at that sort of like entry level that sort of um, when you're just starting, and everyone says. Almost everyone says they got a lot out of that out of that course. That it actually is beneficial and useful, and it's just, it's a powerful hook. And I think you do need to offer something, even though there was strange stuff going on, and there's all kinds of allegations about what's happening in the inner circle of Nexium, especially in Albany. You still need to offer something to people when the, the kind of public facing side of this organization has to be good. Otherwise, the thing would have collapsed when it started. Yeah. Um, I mean, 16,000 people had the Nexium claims have taken their course. So it does speak to the fact that they had something there. And it's one of the reasons I think, you know, Sarah really enjoyed that first course. And one of the things that um, intrigued her and got her excited about taking more and, and fi- ultimately um, why she made the decision to make this her life, to really go up what she calls the strike path or what they call the strike path and climb the Nexium ladder and become a leader in the organization. It's so fascinating because I watched um, that show on Hulu called The Path, Mm -hmm. and it's all about climbing the ladder. And then Scientology is the same thing. It's getting to these different levels. And, you know, I can't, the the names of it escape me, but it's like feet and this and blah, blah, blah. I I don't know. It just seems like to me, and I I don't know because I wasn't in the situation, that if you're going along and they start giving you more and more weird things like this or like, hey, you need fifty thousand dollars for these ten you'll be like well, I don't have it. Then they tried to talk you into, well, isn't it worth, you know, you to be successful for this okay, well let me figure out how I can put the thing on my house. At some point you think a person like your friend who's a regular level headed person would be, okay, I'm not doing that. Right. But at that point I guess you're so in that you can't get out. Well, I mean some yeah. she Sarah says many people did leave. Yeah. And she saw people leave and she thought her thought was, huh those people are failures. Look, they couldn't stick it through. I'm sticking through this. 
And she even says that that when you know she's one of the few people that actually made money in the organization, and she attributes that you know she, she thought the reason I'm in debt, you know, taking all these courses and paying all this money, and I'm not making more money back is because I'm not far enough yet in my personal growth. And then she overcame that, and she felt really proud of herself that she sort of got herself out of debt. And even though she was taking thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of courses, she was making enough money to pay for it. So when she saw other people unable to do that, she thought, well, they're not as good as me. But but that's not to say that, you know, many people would get to that point of saying, I'm not paying another five or $10,000 for this. Like I've had enough. Yeah. And probably most people at some point would leave that there was either they would sort of fade away or there would be something too strange for them. I have to say, I mean, what they did, the way the courses are structured, that very first day that you go to the five-day program, they put all, they threw all the weird stuff at you. Mm-hmm. So that's where you learn the handshake and that you have to bow and you know thank Vanguard, which is what Keith Ranieri yeah. asked everyone to call him. And you know you learn all these rules and rituals about it. And it's a really smart thing to do because for certain people, that is just not something they can stomach and it's not for them. They don't want to be pushed in that way and they will leave. And it kind of weeds out the people right off the bat yeah. that are not going to you know, stick with Nexium and stick with the program. And so, you know, but then, of course, people then will fade away at various other stages uh, along the process as well. Well, when she says when her friend Lauren came to her to talk to her about DOS, now DOS is um, Latin for something that basically means master over the slave women. That's right. Okay. So her friend comes to her and I could just imagine, let's just say, you know, my friend Mary comes to me or my friend Ingrid comes to me and goes, hey, listen, I've got this great idea and we're going to do this thing. Now, I'm going to be your master but it's not really like that. Right. But 400 times a day, you have to text me every two minutes. And if you get in an elevator, you have to tell me. And if I text you at three in the morning, you have one minute to answer. And if the other friend doesn't answer, now we're all punished. I would be like, get out of here. I am not doing that. So when these more and more weird things start coming up, and DOS is eventually what, what gets them branded, mm-hmm. um, and I think that is the the aspect of it that they're charging Keith Ranieri with for the, like the sex trafficking and things like this, that these women eventually, you know, all are, he's the master. Now, she said, she asked Lauren that you played a phone call, is Keith the head of DOS? Mm-hmm. Why would she think that he wasn't the head of DOS? Like, why would she think he's the head of the whole thing? So, of course, he knows everything. Right. So why would she think Lauren had just like branched out on her own and created this group? That's a great question. I mean, I think there, first of all, there was a lot of trust between, and there's a whole, I'm guessing this is what Sarah would say, was that so much about Nexium was about your integrity and your truthfulness. And it was based on these, you know, it was based on these relationships, these trust relationships that when you recruit someone into it, you're often reaching out to friends and people you know and saying this is worthwhile and trust me and and people would come in based on that on that relationship so when her best friend of the organization the woman who marries her and the woman who who is very close to her comes to her and says listen we're creating this women's group in the organization it's only for women we need this to help women you know reach the next level of their personal growth she believed her she believed that that was what this was about um that maybe uh, yep so i i I think from the outside, it is tough to, especially now when as more and more information about Nexium comes out and you start to realize that Keith appeared to know everything about what was going on in the organization and there wasn't a lot of stuff that didn't get past him. It seems surprising that she wouldn't have that thought. Uh, but that 
she says is not what her experience was. And the other thing is that, that Nexium really operate, people operated in silos. So uh, especially for Sarah, who was not, who did not move to Albany where they were, or just outside Albany, where they were, most of the inner circle lived. She had her center in Vancouver. She was kind of further removed and maybe less privy to some of the stuff that was happening in Albany. She was also protected uh, from what was going on. But even people that lived in Albany, they would say, you know, they would have their little corner of the organization or a program that they would run and not often know about the full picture of what was happening. I mean, many people told me they had, they thought Keith Raniere was celibate, that he was this kind of celibate figure that had renounced material goods in the world. Uh, and that was what he had, that's what he espoused to be until that started to change later on in the org. And Sarah says that, you know, around, you know, later on that shifted and he's talked more about once he talk, starts talking about how men are naturally polyamorous and um, need multiple partners and women are, are naturally monogamous, it started to become apparent that that wasn't the case. But he actually, the whole time, the FBI says that he had 15 to 20 women that were part of his harem. And many, many people, and many of those um, that, of that harem were the, the leaders in the organization as well. Many people on other layers of that onion had no idea that that was going on uh, until you know, later in the organization or until actually the FBI came out with its allegations. So those might, that might be some of the reasons that, that Sarah says, you know, would say that she didn't know what was going on. Um, but I think, I think first and foremost, Lauren Salzman, who recruited in, her into it, is one of the highest people in the organization. And Sarah says she explicitly asked her, is Keith part of this? And Lauren said no. And she had every reason to believe that that, that, that was the case. Yeah, because they had a women's organization called Jeunesse and the men's was called Protector Society of Protectors. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they, they, on your podcast, you pay play a clip of Keith talking and it's pretty graphic. And he's yeah. talking about, you know, guys just want to, you know, stick it in everywhere. And that's how we are. And that's, that's what we do. And, you know, and women just don't have that. I mean, it was real, um, real misogynistic and pretty graphic. I think that was like one of the really shocking discoveries. It also helped me understand what was going on? Like when, like why, as you said, how, you know, why is it that an ordinary person would say yes to joining, you know, to this weird secret women's group? A huge part of it is to do with the misogyny that was, that ran throughout the organization. And this idea that men and women are, are inherently different and that women are deficient in a, in a way, that they are less than men and that women have to do more. If you're part of the self-help group, you have to do more to build character and discipline and honor than men have to do. And I think Sarah, I know Sarah says she really internalized that so that when Lauren comes to her and says, this group is going to help you as a woman because of your deficiency as a woman, Sarah said, great, I need that. I need, I need to be some part of something that's more rigorous. That's going to take me to the next level to make, to make me more honorable disciplined and accountable and that so it was once I understood you know once we started to find this the tape of Keith talking about these differences and once we started to hear Sarah talking about what they taught in Jeunesse and Society of Protectors it started to make a lot more sense why she said yes to joining this group in the first place that does make sense I mean she was saying that women were told that they are complainers or they're dawdlers or they, she said, and she would find herself being misogynistic herself, walking down a sidewalk. And if a woman was walking slow, it was like, oh, that woman is slow. Or, oh, of course, she's a complainer. She's a woman. Right. I mean, she's also a woman. I mean, it was, 
real strange, but the way you explain it that way makes sense if they're taught all this time that they're deficient or have all these problems that let's join this new group that'll, that'll help us not be those weak women. That's nuts. In your third podcast, you talk about, and I'm just, this, these are my notes, sex, money, Nazis, <laughs> sex with underage girls, a harem. In the past life, they were Nazis and money schemes. These are my notes. So I just want to touch on this because he told them that in the past lives, a lot of them, you know, he could, how, how he knew this, I don't know, but they were Nazis, but he wasn't. He was the person that had rescued the Nazis. I mean, that's nice. So if you're going to make a, make a narrative, you may as well make yourself that's the, right. the rescuer. That's right. Again, red flag, red flag, red flag. And then the alleged sex with the underage girls, girls came forward saying the, the one person, I don't know if it was Tony or Barbara, said that she would see him, you know, coming in her sister's window. But to me, in my mind, I'm like, well, they were both teenagers at the time. But I think the more the story came out, it was he was in his 20s and this was a young girl. Right. And that she seemed, wasn't yet 17, I think, which it, was around her 17th birthday. And he was in he was post-college. I think he was in his early 20s. Yeah. So when I first heard it, I was like, well, that just sounds like teenage hijinks. But then right. coming to realize actually it wasn't. But it didn't seem like the women that were in his harem were all young. No. No. So where does the sex trafficking charge come in? So there's a few different things there. So I'll start with that. The It seems like, and we don't know the full evidence yet from the FBI. So they've presented you know, their indictment and some of the evidence they have against Keith. And, and when the trial comes out, we will find out more. But women, it seems like the sex trafficking charges are around DOS. So to join DOS, Sarah had to, and, and other women, had to give over collateral. So right. damaging photographs, confessions, like secret confessions, Sarah gave a false confession that a video confession that her husband abused her. And these were ways of ensuring your commitment to the group. That the idea was that if you didn't, if you left the group or if you didn't obey your master, that the, this collateral could be released. The sex trafficking charge is that, that, that there are, the allegation is that women in DOS were instructed by their master to have sexual encounters with Keith. And the women say uh, in, in some of the, the testimony that the FBI has put forward, that they feared if they didn't follow through with that instruction, their collateral would be released. That, the FBI says, is sex trafficking. Okay. You but can't. Sarah didn't experience that herself. No, no, and not everyone, and the FBI doesn't even claim that everyone in DOS experienced that. But there were people in DOS that did experience it, and more than one is what their, their claim is. Uh, Keith Ranieri denies that. Tell me, the actress Allison Mack, tell me her role in this. And she's sort of his, because Nancy Salzman is the prefect. Mm-hmm. So what's Allison Mack's role? She's, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. So yeah. that, what we discovered is that Keith had a pattern of, Keith Reary had a pattern of creating many projects within Nexium. I mean, there's like, as you mentioned, the executive success program, but there was like an acting program and a university and a movement program and a media, you know, analysis program. There was tons of different things. He was constantly creating them and often he would create them in partnership. He would be the kind of the ideas guy. He would find usually a woman um, and partner with them and they would sort of carry it out. It appears that, and I think the FBI alleges that Allison Mack played a central role in creating DOS. And, and this may in fact have been his project with Allison. And, you know, Allison Mack actually was lower ranked than Sarah Edmondson in the organization. One of the reasons that Sarah was really surprised when she sees the A and the M, which she thinks is the initials for Allison Mack, is, is this also the same thing that you said. It's, wait a second, Allison Mack, she's not as high in the organization as me. How does she end up 
higher ranked in, in within this, this structure of DOS in an organization that pays, you know, your, your hierarchy, your rank means everything, right? Every course they wear, the scarves that denotes their rank and their stripes on the star, on, the, on these sashes. So it was very surprising. But it seems like what the FBI alleges is that Allison was one of the frontline masters. So they say Keith was the grandmaster of DOS. He had six women who were his frontline slaves. So it was the first sort of tier of slaves and told them to go out and recruit others. So was Allison one and Lauren Salzman is one? Exactly. That's yeah. what the FBI says. And in fact, in an interview that Allison Mack did with, with New York Times, she says, Allison Mack has a different story. Allison Mack says that, you know, the DOS was created by a bunch of women and that Allison was the one who actually was part of creating the brand mm-hmm. and that the K and the R was a tribute to Keith. It was a way of honoring him. Um, and herself. And herself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so fascinating. So you also talked um, later on in your podcast, you talked with Tony. So she was one of the first ones to speak to the media, but she had, has never filed anything. She, she's never filed any uh, legal action. She's just trying to get away, basically. Right. I mean, she was, she was so Tony Natale was Keith Bernieri's girlfriend from before Nexium. Mm-hmm. So she met Keith Bernieri when he created his first company, which was called Consumers Byline, which was this multi-level marketing company that sold household appliances and vacation packages and all kinds of other stuff. Um, it did really well, made a lot of money. Uh, but he already in, at that time was kind of playing this guru-like figure. He would do these tours around the States and say, I can change your life. Come join me. Come join my company. You can, this the, the same idea of self-empowerment through uh, making money and, you know, selling these products. And, and he really also sold the whole package on the idea that he is one of the most you know, smartest men in the world. And a lot of people, including Tony, said, I, I was taken by that. I thought, wow, if this guy, if the smartest man in the world is creating this and saying that it's going to change my life, I'm going to go do it. And she you know, ended up joining the company and that ends up in a relationship with him and was there at the time that then that company collapses and it, you know, was charged with being a, a pyramid scheme. Wait, is she the one that gave him all the money or was it Barbara? Barbara gave him, gave him the money. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, I, I'm giving those two confused. Yeah. yeah. But so then Tony was, was there when, when Keith Bernieri meets Nancy Salzman, who becomes the president of Nexium, and, and Keith Bernieri becomes the kind of resident guru philosopher. And Tony leaves. They break up sort of a, not long after Nexium is created, and she leaves. But unfortunately, she, she never really leaves because she ends up embroiled in a series of lawsuits and cases she says that Nexium and Lord Keith really went after her and pursued mm-hmm. her as a kind of vengeful act. Yeah, I mean, she has spoken to the media before, but she was also very nervous about the consequences of speaking out. As Keith Bernieri became more and more powerful, as Nexium grew and he attracted wealthy people that gave him a lot of money, I mean, Nexium would be far less effective and you know vital if it didn't attract people like. Claire and Sarah Bronfman, the heirs to the Seagram family fortune, who don't, who gave millions of dollars or invested millions of dollars in the organization. And that allowed him to also pursue people, detractors in the courts. I mean, they could hire lawyers and go after people on frivolous lawsuits, just, uh, you know, potentially just to destroy their lives. So Barbara, she was in the Nexium 9. So was that considered like the harem? So she was considered a, a girlfriend but maybe she didn't realize there were other girlfriends. Well, Barbara says that she, so Barbara Boucher was part of Nexium 
from early years and ends up being a high-ranked member in the organization. She moves into the community where they all lived and just outside Albany uh, and becomes one of Keith's girlfriends. And she says at first she thought it was just a normal monogamous relationship. And then she starts to learn that, wait a second, I think there's a couple other people involved. Mm-hmm. And she says it was only after leaving nine years later that then she discovers, oh my gosh, there's 15 women that are all part of Keith's harem. And you know that's when she made that that discovery, but to some extent she had known when she was with him that it wasn't a conventional relationship and that he did did have other partners as well. Well, in that episode, there was that audio recording of him when they were confronting him and saying, look, you know, some of these things are not working and we've lost money. And they were, several women came together to talk to him and he wasn't having it. He wasn't having any back talk. He was, I'm sure he thought that they were all women. So they probably, you know, didn't know, but it was a group of them and he argued, argued that everything was fine and they had, you know, they were, you know, not reaching their potential by questioning him or whatnot. And then, then he said, you know, people have died for Nexium. I've had people killed for Nexium. He said, I've had people killed. I've had people killed for my beliefs. For my beliefs. So and their beliefs. So the question is, people have been killed because they believed in Nexium or is he saying, I've had people killed. It's really, you know, it's, yeah. it's really not clear. And, and, and this is why um, that, you know, there was that, that short segment of that meeting that the women had with Keith that was released online, including that statement, which has become, you know, the object of a lot of debate about whether, what was he saying there? Was he kind of threatening them? Was he suggesting that he'd actually had people killed? Or was he just sort of fumbling around uh, trying to, to say something more like people have died because of the thing, because they've shared similar. Or he's just grandstanding. He's just grandstanding. So it's not clear, but it's certainly amplified. There's a lot, especially because so much of this was happening kind of in the dark. There was a lot of conspiracy theories. There was a lot of fear, a lot of paranoia about what, you know, uh, around people who had left the organization around what Keith Ranieri might do or Nexium might do to them. And this certainly stoked those fears you know whatever you know some people interpreted it in, in, in all kinds of ways including in a way that he was suggesting that he had actually killed people um it's something that his that later it came up in a trial and his lawyers have a very different take about what's going on there but you know it added to the mythology of keith for sure later on you talk about sarah and nippy talk about their escape which i thought was was great the way she told it you know you really kind of felt like there she's on the train she's with her toddler and he has gone on to the the big uh, <laughs> yearly celebration of Keith's birthday, right. like like the, the like twelve day celebration, <laughs> like the, um, like Christmas, like you're celebrating, you know, the birth of Jesus, but it's a Keith. Right. And uh, he went on to that like normal, but then when he got there, he was confronting people about the branding and stuff, and then he they tried to play it off like the two of them were going to be divorced, or that she had gone to visit her grandmother so that she and the child could get out of town. It was quite a quite a story. I mean, you can like picture it playing out on a big screen, like she's doing this and he's doing that and it's all tense. And I I thought it was pretty interesting how they did that. And then, you know, she comes back around to talk about her mother and I thought her mother's things that she said were so compelling because she's talking about now that she kind of has Sarah back and she's talking about how Sarah treated her during that time. She has a, some sort of a, an eye disease or, or something, right? And that Sarah viewed that as a weakness mm-hmm. and was like, 
really hateful to her mother because of it, as if she could help it because she'd been taught any kind of like medical malady you have is something that you brought on yourself and that you're not healing it. And that's a little bit like Scientology as well. Right. right. I, I, that was heartbreaking to me as a mother to, you know, to hear her saying, I just always hoped she would come back. And how her mother tried to even take courses because Sarah told her, like, I'm in this for my whole life. Mm-hmm. So you better get on board or not get on board. Yeah, her mom was really stuck in this in this awful place between dual, you know, she recognized and saw red flags and really found the organization problematic right from the beginning. She also realized that if she pushed Sarah too far and challenged her too much, that Sarah might just walk away and and their relationship, both her relationship with her daughter, but also with her grandkid, mm-hmm. would be over. Yeah. And so she had to walk this excruciating line between wanting to challenge Sarah and wanting to try and question her and bring up the issues she had and not wanting to go too far. And as you said, and, and even going so far as to take courses, not because she wanted to take courses, but to keep a tab on the group and to be, keep a tab on, on Sarah and her grandkid. I also felt it was heartbreaking to hear it. It was. And, and, and it was the first time I sort of had had that conversation with Sarah's mom, who I've known for a long time, and really got a sense of what those 12 years must have been like. And as you say, like her mom says, Sarah said, I'm in this for life. This is, you better get used to this, mom, because this is my new life. And that's, that's a lot to try and get your head around and to accept. Is, is, is this going to be our normal for life? I'm going to constantly be having to live between these two worlds of protecting my daughter and trying to challenge her, but not trying to challenge her too much that she's going to walk away. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was something. And you also in that, at, it was the last episode, I believe, when you talked to Sarah and you say that you had been out like to a bar with some friends that you knew, you know, all your life, high school and whatnot. And you were telling them what you were doing. And of course they had heard about it at that, at that time, because Mm -hmm. it had been in the times by that point and everything and everybody probably was probably the buzz all around. And you said you wish you would have recorded it because so many of the friends that you had your whole life were like, forget it, man. She tried to lure me into this thing. And and you kind of saw the side of it of her doing her job, trying to get people in and people didn't like that. And they were offended by it. And they were like, you know, basically screw that. Who cares? And you of course had the different side because you've been talking to her for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that a lot. I was like, I wish there would have been like a fly on the wall to hear what all the friends were saying. Right. And then you had to take it to her and say, look, here are the hard questions. You know, what are you gaining from telling your story? And, and, and do you feel that sense of responsibility for lives you may have harmed along the way? And that was a, that was a, you closed the, the the podcast with talking to her about that. And then, of course, also going to the what, what's going on in Brooklyn with his trial and stuff. Right. So when you talked to her about that, how hard was that? It, so how many months had passed that you had been working on it where you kind of got to that point where you're doing that ending? Like, let's kind of have this, you know, what yeah, we, that, say, what we that, say in the South, the come to Jesus meeting. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that That interview where I was really posing the tough questions to her was one of the last interviews we did. Mm-hmm. And it was actually much longer than, as many of the interviews are, than what we used. And it was both something that I certainly knew we needed to do and and wanted to include in the podcast and wanted to sort of be able to represent both sides of, um, or another side of how people are seeing her story and have her, give her a chance to respond to it. 
it also was very hard. I mean, it was, <laughs> we interviewed her for like an hour and a half for that interview with a whole bunch of different questions that are tough for that to, you know, to pose to her and, and, and to really dig into part of her going public. And, you know, she is the only person that has been in DOS that has come forward to the media and allowed the media to use her name and, and to publish her face. Um, except and, and for her pelvic region. And her pelvic region. Yeah. So she has, as she's saying, she's the only person that's come out and been critical. Others like Alison Mack have spoken to the press and have a different take on, on DOS. But she's really become the, the public face of, you know, become the whistleblower and, and the go-to person to talk about what was happening in DOS, which has meant that she's opened herself up to a lot of scrutiny you know, rightly or not. I mean, that's, so by the time I'm asking her questions, I mean, some of those questions might have been new and also she, it's something that she has been having to contend with and think about and, and deal with a lot since she's come forward with her story. But still, it, it, it is, uh, was both an important thing to include the podcast and of, of course difficult to, to, to ask those questions. And, you know, I should say that like uh, some of the people at that bar, you know, some of the opinions they had were also formed in a bit of a vacuum of knowledge. Um, those were, it was kind of earlier days that we had that conversation and the perception of what happened uh, and the sudden about face from being this champion of the organization and, and being a part of it for 12 years. And then suddenly she's saying, oh no, no, this thing's terrible and it's a cult. And uh, I think it was really tough to swallow without understanding what had actually transpired and the steps along the way for Sarah. So for some of those people at that bar, I think their opinion has changed about it, or at least there's some more nuance and understanding uh, about what's going on. And, but this is the, this is the challenge of, of the story and a challenge for many people, people listening to the podcast have had different responses about to what extent are kind of middle management in these organizations culpable for what happens. And do we see her story as a story of pure victimization? Is she also a perpetrator? How accountable should she be for the kinds of ways that, you know, her role in propagating the organization and, and recruiting people into it and, and building up Keith's empire, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, her claim and, and what many people are sympathetic to is that as soon as she found out about the weird stuff, I mean, up to, up to the point that she realized what DOS is sort of before she found out that, uh, was told that Keith was the head of DOS and that women were being instructed to have sexual encounters with him. She really says that she believed in the mission of the organization and she truly believed that, that what she was doing was good. That she wasn't, you know, she said she wasn't being manipulative because she wasn't trying to sell something that she didn't buy into. She felt that it had, it had changed her life and made her a better person and she wanted to share that with other people. So that's the other side of it is that she finds out that something else is going on and she takes a really difficult and brave step of coming forward to the media and putting herself out there when all kinds of other people are leaving and just trying to go silently into the night and just, you know, bury their head in the sand and hope it all goes away. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, been, it's been very interesting to see the conversations and the debate play out online about how to understand her story. And do you understand her as a whistleblower? Do you understand her as someone who, or do you understand her as someone who has not taken full responsibility for her role in an organization? How many hours do you think you talked to her total? Oh my gosh. Uh, I mean, we did initially about four or five days, almost full days with her just to get, you know, I had to get the full story from like, let's start at that day when you're, you know, in your late 20s 
and get recruited all the way to the present day, um, which takes a lot of time. And it's like, it's almost impossible to talk to anyone in Nexium without it being a five hour interview. Right. Um, because it's so complicated and they're so, it's its own universe in some ways. So for them to sort of translate their experience into something I would understand can take a long time. And I would often, and time would go by very fast. It was always riveting. Sometimes, you know, five hours later, I'd realized my legs were asleep and I couldn't stand <laughs> yeah. up. And I, was, uh, I had to, uh, you know, take a moment to walk again. But um, so that, that that initial interview was probably, you know, those four or five days was, you know, upwards of 20 hours. Um, but then we, as the story was developing, we had many follow-up interviews and um, phone conversations and sometimes getting into our studio, sometimes just, you know, recording our phone conversations. So I don't, I mean, we we're into dozens and dozens of hours, maybe upwards of, you know, 60 or something. And which is, which is a huge privilege and, and part of the benefit, I suppose, of having known someone felt less sheepish about sort of calling her for the 4,000th time to ask her a follow-up question and to, uh, uh, you know, to get her latest take on what was happening. And then how many hours would you say that you spent talking to other people, such as Tony or Barbara? And then some people, you know, you couldn't get because they're like in hiding, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, with, you know, someone like Barbara, um, we did several interviews and sort of the first interviews that we did was over the course of a day that we probably did about six hours with her. I mean, and, and she, she and, and many of the people we spoke to, I was, have this remarkable ability to not fade out. <laughs> they can talk for six hours and still, you know, be engaged and enthusiastic and not lose their energy, which is remarkable. I wasn't in it and I could talk about it for six hours. Right. I mean, for yeah, real. Yeah. It's, I mean, and we've got so many things on my list that we're not even going to get to. It's, so right. much. Right. Yeah, no, it's tons. It's tons. And again, because it's such a complicated universe, you can't, you know, it's one of the reasons, like when I first ran into Sarah, and I was actually working for this like current affairs radio program in Canada for the CBC, and I thought, oh, we should get her, you know, we should do an interview with her. We'll do a 15-minute interview with her. It'll be really interesting. And then the more I looked into it, I was like, we can't tell this story in 15 minutes. No one's going to understand anything about what's going on. Right. I was like, okay, we'll do a documentary. We'll do a half an hour. And I thought, we can't tell the story in half an hour. Yeah. And so it really built, like, the reason it became a multi-part series was because the story itself was so complicated. And again, to try and take your time and walk people through what was going on, how it is that you know she ended up where she did, you had to give it the space that it had. And again, we only, that was just telling Sarah's story. I mean, we branch off a little bit to give you context around who Keith Raniere is and a little bit of the stories of other women that, that had tried to leave. But this could be hours and hours. I mean, there's so many other threads and parts of the story that we weren't even able to touch on um, because Sarah's story itself is so complicated. Right. I mean, just trying to talk to you to narrow it down, I could go off on so many <laughs> tangents. I mean, even like the comparison to Scientology alone, you talk about the collateral, Scientologists do that. You right. talk about the suppressive people, right. the Scientologists do that. I mean, you talk about the money and the courses and... Like Sarah said, once you become a coach and you're not getting paid, and a lot of the, a lot of the people in Scientology, you know, don't get paid. Right. I mean, so much of it is a comparison that I do have to wonder if somewhere along the line, Keith Murray looked at that as like, hey, that kind of worked out for L. Ron Hubbard. Right. Maybe, but I'm obviously way smarter, so maybe that would work out for me. Right. I, you know. Yeah. Well, you have so, to wonder. so one of the women that we spoke to, Heidi Hutchinson, who who was around Keith in those early days when. Uh, he knew he wanted to create something. He wanted to make a lot of money. 
he was toying with the idea of it being something spiritual or religious or to do with the human potential movement. She says they talked about Scientology and Key says uh, that that's where we should, you know, that's the way to make a lot of money. Religion's the way to go. They ultimately decided at that point not to create that. But she says it was on their radar. He knew about it. But the other thing I should say is that we talked to a number of cult experts who, and I've read a bunch of stuff, and I'm always shocked when I read books about how these organizations operate. It sounds like they're describing Nexium because they all have ripped a page from the same playbook. Like at right. some, once you, I mean, Scientology, perhaps, and he knew about it, and maybe they borrowed stuff, and some people say, yes, there's like terminology and other things that they've borrowed. But once you look at four or five of these organizations, you realize they all do the same thing. Yes. They all have these hierarchies. They're all wrapped around a single you know, leader. They all require demand a huge amount of time from you and that and and essentially force you to separate yourself from those that are not in the group. Like it's the same things and the same tactics they use again and again. So it might just be the case that Scientology is the best known of them. And perhaps that he, you know, sort of saw elements of Scientology that he wanted to use as well. And another thing I want to touch on quickly is the fright experiment. So you released this bonus episode, which was the fright experiment. So there was a part of Nexium that they had this doctor that, you know, I don't even know how to, quack is not the right word, but he has also been charged in these things. Um, with the, He's uh, been the, charged just by, by the medical oversight board, right. but not criminally. Well, this episode is uh, a woman describes how she goes in the room and they show a series of, a series of three videos, each one, two, first two are clips from movies and, the last one is a real video of, you know, terrorists chopping off the head of women. So the first two she recognizes as, you know, uh, movies and not terrible. And I don't want to see Jodie Foster getting, you know, raped and the accused or whatever. And then, and then the last one is a real live video of people getting their heads chopped off. And it's, you know, she's hooked up to a brain cap and they're supposedly tracking her brain waves to see how, how tough she is basically to take it. Now, what does that have to do with anything with executive success, multi-level marketing, DOS? I mean, it's just like one more weird element that you could talk for six hours just about that. Right. Yeah. And which is one of the reasons we struggled to include it in this series. because so we weren't exactly sure. And maybe more information will come out. But it was hard to tell what the link was. Like, what are they actually up to running these experiments? So part of it was the Nexium philosophy in the curriculum was very much couched in scientific language. And this idea of coming up with this rational and scientific way of changing the world, helping people you know, change their lives, of kind of surgically going into people's minds and psychology and removing elements that are holding you back to you know, make you achieve your goals. And so it made a lot of sense in, to that extent that they would have a doctor or someone from the medical or scientific community running studies to try and understand you know, how... His teachings were affecting the brain. And that was you know, when we, we interviewed Jen Cobalt, who went through this, this so-called fright experiment. She said it, wasn't, it was already normalized that this doctor, Dr. Brandon Porter, was running tests. He would put the brain cap on people as they were watching Keith give a lecture. And he wanted to see what was happening when you had this epiphany, what was happening in your brain, and can we track this, and can we document it? And, and it, you know, it, I, I suppose, you know, would find more evidence that this is life-changing material and in fact they claimed to have developed a, a cure for the symptoms of Tourette's oh right 
right, um, right, right. previous to this as well. Uh-huh. And it, it's, you know, there, there is a, uh, a Nexium former Nexium member, Nexium member, I suppose, um, named Mark Elliott, who, who suffers from Tourette's and says that he went through the curriculum and it cured him. And he's a, a motivational speaker and someone who talks a lot about his experience. And it was one of the things that, that people in Nexium point to as evidence of the profound change that this curriculum and this, this, these courses can have on people. That being said, I'm not sure exactly what was going on, like why Dr. Brandon Porter had created this study to see how mostly women, it appears, would respond to violent and graphic images. There, there could be a number of things going on. I can only speculate. I mean, Keith Raniere actually did file a patent at one point, and he loved to file patents. He you know, filed dozens of them. Um, but he wanted, it, it was something like uh, a patent around whether a, what they call a Luciferian, who was like a, a sociopath, essentially, could be rehabilitated. And the patent essentially describes the fright experiment. It was a way of determining whether a person he said you could you could identify if someone's a Luciferian or a sociopath because you would show them these images and most people would have a, a really intense reaction to them, but the Luciferian wouldn't. And they, in fact, might find pleasure in watching, you know, those okay. clips of the accused or the clips, the, the, essentially the snuff films. Again, I, but, uh, so, so it seems to be a plan from way back. It seems like he, you know, it was thought through, it somehow fits into the Nexium system of, of trying to scientifically test stuff, but I have no idea exactly what they were up to um but it sure is creepy okay is luciferian like uh, expounding on lucifer i i I, I assume so okay that's crazy all right so tell me what's next for sarah and nippy what what are they doing now so sarah's gone back to to her acting career she was an actor before and 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 did some acting along the way uh but has returned to that Certainly, although she had left Nexium, a lot of her time has taken up um, over the past year with Nexium stuff. I mean, she's been involved in a number of uh, different TV documentaries and this project, and um, and also just the work of supporting and helping other people that have left the organization and and working with a lot. You know, she may be testifying at this upcoming trial uh, against the leaders who have been arrested uh, in Nexium. So a lot of her time is taken up with sort of post-Nexium stuff, um, but then also, you know, trying to, to restart her acting career and enter, entering that world again. And I'm not sure that she knows exactly what's going to happen next. I think she may very well end up, you know, she's kind of talked about being involved in helping people who have left these, these kinds of organizations. And, and you know, there, there is a whole uh, industry and career path that people do take where they especially people who have, who have personally gone through this experience have helped others go through it. So that might, might be in the cards for her, but I think she, it's still a slow process of sorting out what to do. And even for her personally, it takes a long time to untangle yourself psychologically from being in an organization for that long. I mean, this was her life, not just like her community and all her friends and her job, but also her way of seeing the world. And trying to still figure out, was there anything valuable about what I was teaching? And, and, or was it all just corrupted by Keith Raniere? Was it all just manipulation? It's a really difficult process and not one that can happen quickly. And I think that's also just part of what's happening. She's doing therapy and, and, and 
certainly has a lot of support, uh, but that is a, a long process as well for her. A lot of Scientologists say the same, that they did get something out of it, you right. know, of, of course. They, a lot of them attribute a lot of their success to it. You know, she's compelling in that you can tell she's a smart, tough woman. Right. So you can listen thinking like, okay, that, you know, that could be me. Um, so you're, uh, you're living here in Brooklyn for the time being. Are you going to be covering the trial? We are, I am going to be covering the trial. We're still, first of all, trying to find out when, we're waiting to find out when it's going to happen. So it's slated for March. It's already been pushed back. So I am planning on doing some kind of coverage of it and following the story. I mean, it's going to be fascinating, the trial, both because there is a ton of information and material that has never, you know, a lot of the gaps and the holes in, in what we know, I think will be filled when the prosecution comes forward with its story and the evidence that it has. And also many people in that room will have not seen each other. If Sarah testifies, she will be seeing people like Lauren Saltzman, who was her best friend for so many years, who she has not seen since the day she left. So it, it, it will be fascinating, intriguing, you know, to, to see how it plays out and, and to see what happens with this. Who all is charged? I know Keith is charged. Allison Mack is charged. Right. There are six leaders, including Keith Ranieri, from Nexium who have been charged. Claire Bronfman, Allison Mack, Nancy and Lauren Salzman, uh, mother and daughter, Keith Ranieri, Kathy Russell, I believe is her name, who was a former accountant for them. Is So the other Bronfman sisters not being charged? The other Bronfman's not being charged. Interesting. Yeah. That that see that that's a whole nother podcast right there about uh, the Bronfman sisters. I mean, right, speaking of podcasts, at the end of my podcast, I asked my guest, "What podcast do you listen to?" Uh huh. Um, tons. I mean, there's yeah. so much stuff out there right now. <laughs> I know. It's we're we're. I'm sure we're not at the golden age, but it's certainly just a, a, an amazing moment to be in the podcast world, just because of how much incredible content there is. Certainly, and I have to say, at the CBC as well has, you know, over the last few years really invested in creating podcasts and a whole wide range of them. They're um, unbelievable. Which are, yeah, yeah, so Finding Cleo is an amazing series that uh, CBC created. It was the second of a series, uh, second s- s- uh, series focused on this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women um, in Canada. And this is a 10-part series that that came out that it is a remarkable story about a family trying to find out what happened to uh, one of their siblings. And then also someone knows something is another CBC. Absolutely, yes. And so, so besides CBC, what, uh, <laughs> what other... Outside stuff? of it. Yeah. Um, gosh, I mean, I, I, I've certainly like consumed and, and really enjoyed a lot of the ones that, that are, that many people would have heard of, like, like In the Dark and Dirty John and Dr. Death I'm listening to right now as well, which is just an unbelievable story. Yep. And then, you know, I listen to a lot of, I'm sort of filling the different niches. So I, I, you know, listen to a bunch of different news podcasts, The Daily at the New York Times, and CBC has just come out with, with Front Burner, which is its own, our own kind of daily news program. And I, I, I was, I feel like I was an early adopter of, of podcasts. I was listening to like Slate's Political Gab Fest. I want to say when it started, I don't, I want to say it's like the mid 2000s. Yeah, Slate I has feel, some good ones. Yeah, so Slate yeah. has great stuff. And you know, people that you start to, you feel like you build a relationship with them and you feel like, you know, you, you understand all their inside jokes and whatever. And it's wonderful if you commute or wash dishes or vacuum <laughs> a house ever <laughs> or go for a walk. I, I know. I have friends that say, when do you listen to these podcasts? And I said, you know, 
if I'm just in the kitchen making dinner or whatever I'm doing, I always have a podcast on. And I love ones that are the um, the long series like yours. Right. Because, you know, I, I like to come into them a couple of weeks late <laughs> so that I can build up so I don't have so much like, oh, gosh, i got to wait till next week, right. you know. When yours first came out, had the initial, when you went to Brooklyn to the courthouse, had that already happened and you had done the whole thing or you tacked that on at the end? Uh, no, I had already, I had um, already gone done the, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, when it showed up on my phone, knowing I was talking to you today, it showed up on my phone yesterday. There was a bonus. I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it turned out uh, it was someone interviewing you That's right. from CBC and yes. then talking about the next season That's right. of Uncover. Which, which is like yeah. a, t- a totally different story. So Uncover yeah. is now going to be the this um, overall feed or every season is a different investigation. Right. So yeah. yours is Uncover Escaping Nexium and the one next year will be next season will be Uncover and it's about this. It's called Bomb on Bomb on Board and it's about uh, this unsolved case of a bomb uh, of a, a plane that appears to have exploded in the sky over British Columbia uh, in the in the 60s and no one has ever solved what's going to happen and it's surprising cuz um, it's a story that that I had never heard of and most Canadians probably hadn't ever heard of either. It's fascinating because they it, they're going to be digging in and try and figure out you know what was known and and, and see if they can get any closer to to solving it. Okay. Yeah. So all these podcasts they'll be they'll be called Uncover, but then the after the um, colon they'll be it'll be something, something else. else exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. We'll look forward to that too. And yeah. yours every time you're covering up covering the trial and stuff, it'll still pop up on my podcast yes. as Uncover Escaping Next Season exactly. a new episode. Exactly. And iTunes now I think it lets you attach. Uh, bonus content to a season, mm-hmm. so it, it it may sort of say, "See, exactly, uncover escaping Nexium bonus season one bonus," and that will come out then. Right. That, I mean, that really is like the thrill of my morning when I wake up in the morning or around lunchtime or noon. When sometimes when they drop and it comes up on my phone and it'll say, "And you know, like, ooh, it's like a little, it's a little excitement for your afternoon." Well, you must <laughs> you must be tracking a ton of podcasts given oh, that, I am. this. The focus of this show. <laughs> I am. I am. And then every week I'm just finding out new ones. Right. And I'm putting those on my list. Exactly. And, you know, and then somebody like, you know, somebody will tell me, oh, what about this? And it's a genre that I'm not remotely interested in. But the way they describe it and their passion for it, like, well, now I have to listen to that. Right. So, yeah, it's um, I just spend a lot of time in my car shuttling my kids around. So <laughs> I uh, a lot of times my kids will get in the car and they'll put their headphones in. They go, OK, mom, you can put on your podcast. I'm like, okay, thanks. And I have to decide if it's appropriate or not because sometimes of the cursing. Right. Not that they haven't heard it. Right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And this has been amazing to be in New York and get to interview you face to face. I feel like won the lot the podcast lottery here today. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.